0: Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 38, The First Terror. In the last episode, we examined the winners and losers of the Second Revolution. In particular, we surveyed the various individuals, factions and institutions, which saw their prospects rise or fall as the French monarchy was violently overthrown. In this episode, we're going to explore the actions of the new Paris Commune, as it pursues what some historians characterize as the first terror. We'll also examine what this means for tensions between the commune and the assembly, as well as the girondins and the montagnards. This episode will include everything from mass arrests to revolutionary tribunals and will set us up for one of the most gruesome and bloodiest events of the French Revolution, the infamous September Massacres. Now, I've been hinting for some time that I have some important news regarding the future of the show, and so here it is. For a while, I've been struggling to balance the demands of my job and the podcast. These episodes are now taking more than 50 hours each to produce, and doing them with any sort of frequency alongside my career has proven unsustainable. Given this, I've had to make a choice. My job, or Grey History. And contrary to pretty much every bit of advice I've been given, I've chosen Grey History. So, what does this mean for you? Well, for at least the next six months, I'm going to focus exclusively on the podcast. I will be producing episodes roughly every two weeks, with bonus episodes for Patreon supporters of the show every fourth episode. Over the next six months, my hope and my prayer is that we collectively. Can get the podcast to a point where it's sustainable. And by that, I mean it covers rent and at a minimum some tasty canned beans. Until then, I'm pretty much working on the show while living primarily off my savings, which is why this experiment is either going to succeed or fail within the next six months. So, this is where I need your help. I can only presume that if you've made it through nearly 40 episodes of detailed French Revolution analysis, that you're loving the show. And so I need your support to keep producing it. I'm throwing my all into this to give you more grey history more often. But I need something in return. I need your help. Firstly, please share the show to anyone and everyone who might be interested in our mission to explore history in a way that isn't black and white. In a way that doesn't oversimplify the past. In a way that seeks to use history to better confront the numerous challenges of our own times, times which seem increasingly disinterested in nuance and ambiguity and the fact that two well-meaning people can actually hold different points of view. That means telling your friends, your family, your teacher, your colleagues, anyone that you think might have an interest about the podcast, as well as sharing it on social media if you can. The second thing you can do is support the show on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that lets you essentially sign up as a member of the Grey History community. In return for a small donation when episodes are released, you'll get access to hours worth of bonus content, including episode extras, bonus episodes and behind the scenes videos. Some membership tiers even have early access, and for those on the true revolutionary tier and above, episode 39, The September Massacres Part 1, well that's available right now. A full two weeks ahead of schedule. Patreon donations start for as little as $2 per future episode, and you can cancel any time. Put simply, producing Grey History is a tremendous amount of work, and I'm throwing caution to the wind to try to bring you more of it. But I need your help to make it happen. Not somebody else's help, but yours. There's links in the show notes and on the website, or you can just Google Grey History Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Again, I'm throwing everything into this. I'm determined to help bring ambiguity and nuance back to how we explore our shared past. But I need your help to do so. I can't do it alone. As always, a huge thank you to all existing Patreon sponsors of the show. A warm welcome to the new virtuous citizens, Hannah, Gavin and Stefan, as well as the new true revolutionary, James. Of course, a special shout out to the champions of the people, Jeffrey, Cynthia, George, and Brady, as well as to Toby for increasing their pledge. Finally, a huge thank you to Jinx, who has joined Brian as a hero of the revolution. As always, thank you to those sharing the podcast on Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media platforms, as well as those who have left written reviews on Apple Podcasts or sent in emails to the show. If you ever send in an email or tag the show on social media, keep your eyes open in your inbox because I'll almost certainly reply within 24 hours. Please remember to continue to share the show with anyone who you think would enjoy a history podcast that embraces the ambiguities of the past. A quick note on the bonus content front. For Patreon supporters, it's officially time to vote for the next bonus episodes topic so please vote for as many episode ideas as you like. The last bonus episode focused on science during the Revolutionary Era, but who knows what will be selected for the next topic. Currently in first place is the topic of the French Effect, which would look at how the revolution initially impacted domestic politics across Europe and the United States. Other ideas include the annexation of Avignon and the Corsican Revolution, both of which are polling pretty well voting for more than half a dozen suggestions is on Patreon, and I've put a link in the show notes and on the website. I'll close the poll towards the end of May, and the bonus episode will be episode 42. So, Patreons, this is your chance to vote for the topic of the next bonus episode, and if you're not already a Patreon supporter, well, what are you waiting for? Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History, episode 38, The First Terror. I want you to list things that are common across all revolutions. Not just political revolutions, but cultural and religious ones as well. Things that either literally or figuratively hold true in most cases, when a dramatic and far-reaching change overturns the status quo. For me, the one thing that is common across revolutions, or at least most revolutions, is the toppling of statues. In fact, when I think about political revolutions, One of the things I think of is statues being hauled to the ground. Try watching a Cold War documentary without seeing statues of Marx and Lenin unceremoniously biting the dust. Or for that matter, the demise of the Berlin Wall, itself a symbolic statue as much as a barrier with utility. Religious revolutions love a good statue removal as well. With no shortages of idols, busts and artwork being defiled, modified or outright eradicated across the centuries. Even in an abstract way, technological and cultural revolutions usher in new role models and individuals praised for their intellect, inventions, foresight and skill. I would wager that across the globe more people would know of and admire Steve Jobs than Alexander Bell, certainly amongst the younger generations at least. Veering back on track, in traditional revolutions, it would seem that the one constant in settled societies is our tendency to topple statues whenever we get the chance. So, it should come as no surprise that on the 10th of August, 1792, Statues promoting royalty met an abrupt and sudden end. With the Second Revolution in full swing, members of the crowd turned their attention to the hallmark of all good revolutions. Statue toppling. All symbols of royalty felt the people's wrath. Across the city, statues honouring kings were hauled to the ground. Even long-celebrated monarchs met their demise. Henry IV, Philip IV, and Clovis, the first king of the Franks, were all toppled from their heights. The statues of the latter two were actually housed in churches, but the holy sites failed to provide sanctuary. The people were determined to eradicate the wicked from every corner of the city, churches included. Also to be purged were the enablers of the wicked. Busts and statues of aristocrats, cardinals and royalists all met with a swift end. Even revolutionaries, who had been popular just a few years prior, were purged from the public sight. Lafayette, Bailly and Necker were just some who had their images cast aside. Of course, this impulse didn't stop at statues, nor was it confined to Paris, nor the 10th of August itself. Over the next few days and weeks, symbols of royalty were thoroughly expunged, even before it was determined that France would become a republic. Portraits, artwork, aristocratic emblems and inscriptions, everything glorifying monarchs and their lackeys were removed and replaced. In no time, the names of towns, palaces, roads, gardens and city sections were all changed To hide their royalist past. But while swift, ultimately the changing of names was not the most immediate priority of the revolutionaries and the citizens who supported them, nor was the toppling of statues, although it did offer a convenient way to let off some steam. No, the most pressing problem was what instigated this statue toppling bust-bursting, name relabeling in the first place. The most pressing problem was Royalist conspiracy. As the insurrection of 10 August unfolded in Paris, an atmosphere of fear, confusion and popular fury permeated throughout the streets. As soon as blood was spilt in the Tuileries Palace, the popular psyche attributed this bloodshed to the work of a Royalist conspiracy. According to the Parisian revolutionaries, the Swiss Guards had laid a cunning and deliberate trap. They had deceived the insurgents by initially fraternising with them, lured them in with the false hope of peaceful resolution, and then, when the traitors could inflict the maximum amount of damage, they butchered true French patriots with a murderous volley of musket fire. Of course, We have already discussed the events which precipitated the massacre of the Swiss Guards, and the fact that no such conspiracy existed, but what is important here is that, in the popular psyche, the fighting had commenced because of a secretive royalist plot to kill well-meaning citizens. The revolutionaries were convinced of this, and it was this perception which, in their minds, justified the brutal and at times barbaric treatment of the Swiss soldiers. Naturally, if there was one conspiracy, then why not two? And so the chaotic and bloody scenes of the palace not only fueled a desire for revenge, but also an atmosphere of fear and confusion. Where would the next strike come from? When would the next trap be sprung? who was the next unsuspecting victim of the counter-revolutionaries which lurked in the shadows. Prior to the 10th of August, the revolution had already been consumed by a culture which saw conspiracy lurking in every shadow. It was this culture of suspicion which had created such divides between the revolutionary factions, including the Fillons, the Girondins and the Montagnards. With the people convinced that the bloodshed of the 10th of August had commenced because of conspiracy, it was only natural that the institutions representing the people sought to eradicate the threat within. If we start with the sections of Paris, the administrative units of the capital wasted no time in copying the new commune as they pursued any and all traces of conspiracy. Establishing their own surveillance committees, as well as police commissioners, the sections set about arresting suspected individuals and suppressing counter-revolutionary publications, performances and demonstrations. In an ironic twist, which showed just how far the revolution had come, the sections also busied themselves with issuing passports for those who wished to leave Paris. I say ironic because initially, The revolution had actually abolished passports. The documents were seen to be infringing on the citizens' right to freedom of movement. However, as the revolution's situation deteriorated, so too did this laissez-faire attitude towards the movement of people. The borders were closed during the panic which followed the King's failed escape attempt in June 1791, and after the war commenced. Authorities were given permission to deny passports on political grounds. In the wake of the 10th of August, this resulted in some odd situations, including scenarios where foreign ambassadors could not leave Paris because the section they resided in refused to issue them a passport. Imagine a foreign ambassador not being allowed to depart Washington, D.C., because a ward in the capital refused to grant them permission. Not the president, not Congress, not a cabinet member, not the mayor or municipal government, just a single ward. That was the effective situation in the capital, as the sections used their authority to vigorously root out any and all threats to the revolutionary cause. However. While the sections of Paris were enthusiastic detectors of conspiracy, their actions paled in comparison to those of the new insurrectionary commune. Going forward, I will refer to this body just as the commune, as the insurrection of 10 August was, well, successful. The new municipal government was just that, the new municipal government, the old commune The body which had been tossed aside during the insurrection? That's not coming back. There is no Commune in exile to speak of. So, henceforth, when I say Commune, I am referring to the municipal government of Paris, the one which self proclaimed its own legitimacy on 10 August before immediately toppling the monarchy and castrating the Legislative Assembly. Anyway, as I was saying, the actions of the sections did not amount to much when compared to the actions of the new Commune. As touched on in the last episode, the Commune threw itself at the task of exposing and eradicating all the counter-revolutionary forces menacing the nation. This enthusiasm was understandable, because the rumours circulating the city claimed that several sinister plots were afoot. These plots were merely waiting for the perfect moment to murder unsuspecting citizens, just as the Swiss had done at the Tuileries Palace. According to historian Timothy Tackett, stories spread rapidly of a range of conspiracies which endangered the people. Some claimed that 400 nobles who had survived the 10th of August were hiding out underground and were waiting to strike. Others claimed... That huge caches of weapons were concealed beneath the Pantheon and the Palais Royal in preparation for a counter revolutionary coup. If the rumours were to be believed, then armed men could strike the Jacobin Club at any moment, while saboteurs were placing shards of glass into the city's flour supply to cause chaos until the Prussian army arrived. It was in this anxious environment characterized by fear and distrust that the new commune energetically pursued all the enemies of the revolution. Conveniently for the body, claiming to represent the revolution, this also allowed it to pursue its own enemies as well. Step into the world of power, loyalty. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939 and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War the results. Was nothing short of behaviour that one might associate with a police state. In fact, the revisionist historian Simon Sharma describes the commune's regime as just that. The commune instigated police raids, arbitrary detention, suppression of the free press, and the seizure of goods in the name of the nation's defence. Most notably, given the events that would unfold in early September, the commune sought to arrest those suspects Who were considered dangerous to the people and the revolution. Aristocrats, priests, politicians, public servants, any whose revolutionary credentials appeared lacking, were now fair game. The power of the king would no longer protect these scoundrels from the people's justice. One primary target for the commune's arrests were non constitutional priests. As a reminder, roughly half of the nation's priests had refused to swear loyalty to the revolutionary government, and these clerics had become a focus of the revolutionaries who were convinced of betrayal from within. The renegade clergy had long been portrayed as a seditious fifth column within France. And now, with the king's veto no longer an obstacle, the Girondin-dominated assembly finally passed laws allowing for their deportation. The Commune took the authority to deport those priests who had refused to swear an oath to the Constitution as akin to authority to arrest them, and wasted no time in rounding them up. In fact, the Commune had begun to arrest refractory clergy prior to the Assembly's new laws. But it wasn't just the priests who were targeted. Royalist ministers, suspect journalists, and even former deputies of the National Assembly were named for detention. Yet the list of suspects was diverse, to say the least, with my personal favourite definitely being Louis XV's former mistress, Madame du Barry. Who knows what state secrets she was hiding under that dress. Jokes aside, the imprisonment of others appeared to be either accidental or completely unjustified. One arrest which raised eyebrows was the detention of Abbé Sicard, a priest known for his work with the disabled children of Paris. Luckily for Sicard, he was promptly released, with the speedy resolution of his ordeal likely saving his life. I could labour for some time detailing the arrests or harassment of various individuals, including personal enemies of the men who now occupied the commune such an effort would be unnecessary. I could also talk at length as to the analysis conducted on just how many were arrested during the month of August, but we'll touch on that next episode. For now, all you need to know is that there was a perception that these arrests were so plentiful that the prisons were soon overflowing. In short, in the wake of the 10th of August, the commune brutally pursued any and all traces of counter-revolution. Given the fact that France was not only at war, but as of the 19th of August, literally invaded by foreign armies, such a pursuit is understandable. However, conveniently for the new government, this pursuit of counter-revolutionary dangers not only gave the commune grounds to target genuine counter-revolutionaries, but it also gave it the opportunity to target those who were its political opponents. It was not just arch-royalists who were arrested, but constitutional monarchists as well. It was not just the reactionary press which was suppressed, but moderate and constitutional printers too. In effect, the Second Revolution had allowed the victors to redefine the word counter-revolutionary. Those who were enthusiastic supporters of the revolution of 1789, but resisted the coup of 10 August were now considered just as dangerous as those who had opposed the original revolution of 1789. Thus, it wasn't just priests and nobles who found themselves the subjects of arrest warrants, but fions, constitutionalists, and others whose defense of the first revolution now made them suspects of the second. Furthermore, it wasn't just genuine public enemies who were marked for arrest, but also those with personal feuds and grievances with the men who had come to occupy new positions of power. Given all this activity by the Commune, it's easy to see why this period is labelled by some historians as the first terror, especially once we touch on the events we're going to discuss next episode. Suppression of the free press, Restrictions on the freedom of movement, arbitrary detention, seizure of private goods. These were terrifying for many, and contrary to the principles which the revolution of 1789 had held so dear. So before we go any further, I do want to unpack what some historians make of all of this. How do historians characterise the actions of the commune, its motivations and its justifications? It's all well and good for us to sit back and decry this, that and the other, centuries later, but it's important that we understand the complete context in which to view the actions of the new municipal government. The Marxist historian George Lefevre does not mince his words when he states that the first priority of the victors of 10 August was the establishment of their dictatorship. In fact, across the ideological spectrum, Historians of various stripes, left and right, have no qualms simply stating that the Commune was forcefully and effectively establishing its power at the expense of civil liberties and the Legislative Assembly. But while there is broad recognition that the Commune ruled in a dictatorial manner, that does not mean that criticism of the Commune is plentiful nor unanimous. In fact, even amongst some conservative historians, who are rather dismayed at the commune's actions its work is portrayed by some as an understandable necessity and since we're going to be talking a lot about necessity in the next few episodes we should take the time to ask the question can all of this be rationalized to set the scene let's remember that this is not the revolution of 1789 this was the revolution of 1792 This was a revolution born in a time of war, treason, and extreme hardship. It's in this environment that the Commune sought to establish itself as the preeminent power, not only in Paris, but the country, at least until the new National Convention could replace the Legislative Assembly. And it's here that we find the first justification for the Commune's actions war. Not only was France at war, but it was losing that war. Crossing the frontier in mid-August, the coalition armies of Prussia and Austria were finally on the march, and they were marching on French territory. The invasion of France had finally begun. But a disastrous war was only part of the problem. To make matters worse, the countryside was in disarray thanks to fresh peasant arrest. Unrest caused primarily by shortages of bread and basic commodities. Of course, that scarcity of bare necessities was impacting the cities as well, causing further hardship, distress, and instability. Add to this already potent mix the threat of royalist elements in the French armies, the possibility of counter revolutionary uprisings in the provinces, and the rumoured saboteurs infesting the capital. And, well, one has the recipe for a complete and utter disaster. These were the reasons why historian Timothy Tackett describes the period between the 10th of August and the establishment of the new convention as a time where both Paris and France were on the edge of anarchy. If France was to succeed in its efforts of national defence, if France was to hold the line against the kings of Europe, someone had to seize power, someone had to lead that defence, someone had to reinstitute discipline and authority, and not care to do so in a polite or diplomatic manner. The Commune was determined to be that someone, and would not apologise for using any and all methods required to secure the safety of both France and the revolution. This included the repressive and illiberal measures which horrified some contemporaries and historians, but measures that the Commune and its supporters viewed to be completely justified, given the severity of the situation. The actions of the Commune in August 1792 remind me of a line in Orlando Farge's amazing book on the Russian Revolution. It's been almost ten years since I've read a people's tragedy. Figgs' 900-page epic on the Russian Revolution, but there's a line in that book that has always stuck with me. Now, I don't have my copy with me, so I can't quote him exactly, but the line is in effect as follows. Besieged fortresses are seldom ruled in a democratic manner. In August 1792, France was a besieged fortress. Worse still, it was a vulnerable, compromised and leaderless fortress, one whose previous leadership was either inept, as in the case of the assembly, or treasonous, as in the case of the court. While the initial actions of the Commune may appear excessive and unjustifiable to our eyes in the 21st century, when discussing these actions, we must remember the situation France found itself in at the time. These initial actions alone would not be unheard of in Western democracies in times of existential struggle. In fact, just look at how the United States treated its own citizens of Japanese descent in World War II. Concerned about the possibilities of sabotage, tens of thousands of American citizens were detained in concentration camps purely because of their Japanese descent. Their crime? Being ethnically Japanese. Not that different from the crimes of being a former noble or a pious priest, is it? So, while the Commune is often criticised by some for these actions, I would say that it's important to remember the broader situation that the new municipal government found itself in. That does not excuse or justify its excesses, but it does help to ground discussions of its work with the proper frame of reference. However, the actions of the Commune and its eagerness to establish its authority didn't just relate to the needs of the national defense. One must always remember that the Commune's legitimacy was questionable. The proportion of Parisians, let alone French citizens, who actively and enthusiastically supported the Commune was quite small. One should not take the majority's relative silence in relation to the monarchy's removal as akin to the majority's support for the new Paris Commune's existence and authority. The 10th of August was essentially a coup, which had been executed and enforced by a small proportion of the population. If one compares the level of popular support to the events of, say, July 1789, the new body did not enjoy anything like the popular legitimacy of the National Assembly after the Bastille's fall. As a result, some historians argue that the body had no choice but to resort to force in order to establish its supremacy, as what other option did it have considering that it lacked significant and broad popular support? Historian John Dolberg-Acton notes between a king who was deposed and an assembly that abdicated, the commune alone exhibited the energy and force that were to save the country. Being illegitimate, they could quell opposition only by violence, and they made it clear what violence they meant to use when they gave an office to Marat. This argument... That the commune had little choice but to use force to secure its authority has some merit. It would not be the first, nor last, revolutionary body to do so. And this perspective opens up an interesting hypothetical. Would the commune have implemented all the repressive measures we just discussed, even if the threat of war hadn't been so immediate? Would the commune have resorted to such an approach if the enemy wasn't at the gates? Are there reasons other than war which explain the illiberal policies of the commune? Dealing in historical hypotheticals is always a dangerous and complicated exercise, but I would wager that the answer is yes. And to explain why, I would point your eyes to the first First Terror. That's right, the first First Terror. You see, I've named this episode the First Terror because this period of time is labeled as such by a variety of historians from a variety of ideological perspectives. But you may remember that some historians titled the events of mid-1791 as the Tricolor Terror. If you recall, the Tricolor Terror occurred in the chaotic weeks following the king's failed escape attempt in June 1791. In mid-July of that year, The famous Chartres-de-Mars Massacre occurred in Paris, and combined with the split of the Jacobin Club, which created the Fillon Club, the tumultuous events ushered in a period of time which was itself characterised by much the same actions we're discussing now. As the newly formed Fillon majority of the National Assembly tried to resist calls for dethronement and even the establishment of a republic, the Fillons in 1791, like the Commune in 1792, used a range of repressive measures to secure their authority. In mid-1791, the positions we've been discussing were reversed. It was members of the Cordelier Club, the Jacobin Club, the Brassoans, the radical journalists, the progressive left-wing revolutionaries who were subjected to illiberal and undemocratic measures. These measures forced revolutionary journalists like Marat and Demelard into hiding. They prompted Danton to flee to London. Hell, they even triggered Robespierre, then a member of the National Assembly, to change his lodgings and keep a lower profile. Importantly, these repressive techniques were used in a time of peace. Yes, in a time of significant uncertainty. Yes, in a time where foreign intervention was possible. But nonetheless, these measures were deployed by the Fions in a time of peace. So, while some historians emphasise that the Commune resorted to authoritarian techniques to secure its position in part because it lacked significant popular support, the same can be said for the Fionts of the National Assembly, which had done much the same the year prior. Thus, those justifying the Commune's heavy-handed techniques by claiming the war required it, are at times, in my opinion, conveniently forgetting that such actions probably would have occurred anyway. Furthermore, there is one notable difference between the tricolour terror of 1791 and the first terror of 1792. When the National Assembly wrapped up in September 1791, one of its last actions was an amnesty for political prisoners of various stripes. It was hoped that such a measure would promote national unity and harmony as the Constitution of 1791 came into force. A year later, no such amnesty would be issued in 1792, and it was the Commune, not the Legislative Assembly, which ensured that such an act would not occur. Quite the contrary. Far from forgiveness, the Commune's priority was justice. And in its mind, justice should be delivered by a blade. In the wake of the Royalist plot of 10 August, and as always, I say Royalist plot with inverted commas, but anyway, in the wake of the Royalist plot of 10 August, the Revolutionary Commune demanded justice. In fact, the people, through sectional assemblies and political clubs and public demonstrations, demanded justice justice in the popular narrative the swiss guards stationed at the palace had brutally murdered their kinsmen and while many had perished during the ensuing massacre some swiss had survived in doing so these soldiers had avoided justice thus the surviving swiss now faced calls for their immediate trial and execution in order to ensure this happened the commune including both Marat and Robespierre, threw its support behind the idea of establishing a new revolutionary tribunal. No time was wasted, with the Commune lobbying the Legislative Assembly to agree to its formation within just a few days of the insurrection of 10 August. Under its eventual constitution, and this part is important, the tribunal was to be staffed by representatives of the sections. And there was to be no appeals process. If the tribunal found you guilty, that would be the end of it. Furthermore, not only were its judgments final, but its verdicts were to be implemented immediately. To the revolutionaries in the commune and their supporters amongst the city's sans-culottes and federés, the need for this tribunal was self-evident. Not only did the perpetrators of the crimes of 10 August need to be held to account, but all enemies of the revolution needed to be swiftly eliminated. This is not only what justice demanded, but it's what the nation's dangerous situation required. With the commune busying itself with the arrests of priests, nobles and other counter-revolutionaries, the traditional, lethargic, slow-moving wheels of justice were not suitable for a revolution facing extinction from foreign armies. Furthermore, those traditional, lethargic, slow-moving wheels of justice were all manned by men the revolutionaries did not trust. Men who had worked for the loathed regimes which had just been overthrown. In short, the times demanded swift resolution. The people demanded justice and both could only be achieved through a new revolutionary tribunal. But while the new commune saw in the tribunal a vehicle to dispense uncompromising justice, the legislative assembly, dominated by political opponents of the men in the commune, saw quite the opposite. The Girondin-dominated assembly looked at a tribunal run by the city's radicals and without a process of appeals, and quite rightly feared just what such an institution could do. As such, the Assembly, already discredited in the eyes of many sans culottes thanks to its refusal to convict Lafayette and embrace dethronement, further eroded its credibility with the revolutionary cohorts of Paris. The Assembly refused to back the proposed tribunal, claiming that existing judicial bodies. Could adequately try crimes associated with the 10th of August. Unsurprisingly, this position caused outrage amongst the radical sections of Paris, with one section declaring that failure to establish the tribunal would result in another insurrection, this time targeting the Assembly rather than the Crown. Backing both the radical sections and the Commune was Robespierre, who proceeded to appear before the Assembly. To relitigate the issue. Robespierre, acting as a member of the Commune, did not hold back as he demanded, in no uncertain terms, the establishment of a new tribunal. In a hostile tone, Robespierre declared to the deputies The tranquility of the people depends upon the punishment of the guilty. And yet you have done nothing to convict them. Your decree is insufficient. It does not explain the nature of the crimes to be punished, for it mentions only the crimes of the 10th of August, whereas the crimes of the enemies of the French Revolution are not confined to that day or to the city of Paris. By a similar indefinite expression, the traitor Lafayette escaped the vengeance of the law. As to the form of a tribunal, The people can no longer tolerate that already established. Appeals from one court to another are attended with interminable delays. And besides, all the old authorities are very much suspected. New ones must be instituted. And that at present demanded must be composed of deputies taken from the sections, so that it may be enabled to pronounce final judgment with sovereign authority and without appeal. Despite his demands for a new tribunal, the deputies of the assembly refused to give way. Some lawmakers decried the idea as unworthy of a free people, while historian Adolf Thiers records that others denounced the tribunal as a weapon which would be used for despotism. Robespierre's chief rival, Brousseau, was amongst those who condemned the tribunal as a tool for tyranny. And the deputy, and apologies here for French speakers, the deputy Thurio decried its creation as a crime against liberty. During the debate, Thurio proclaimed Liberty is dear to me, and so is the revolution. But if a crime is necessary to make the revolution secure, I should prefer to plunge a dagger in my breast. Encountering severe resistance to the tribunal, the revolutionary cohorts of Paris would not take no for an answer. Outraged by the rejection of their proposal, radical sections once again proceeded to threaten the assembly. The assembly was explicitly warned that if they failed to pass a decree creating the tribunal, then Paris would once again rise up and topple the constituted authorities. Facing the very real threat of revolutionary violence, the deputies backed down. The assembly finally consented to the establishment of the new revolutionary tribunal, but only after their own lives had been threatened by the radicals of Paris. The Scottish witness John Moore summed it up perfectly. There is reason to believe that the Assembly itself is under the influence of terror. Now, there's a few things I want to unpack here before we move on to the invasion of France and the infamous events of early September. Firstly, what did this new tribunal get up to? The Commune demanded swift, revolutionary justice and, well as we'll see shortly, that that justice just wasn't so swift. Secondly, I want to further explore what all of this means as it relates to the power struggle between the Commune and the Assembly. And finally, I want to discuss the impact of these developments on the increasingly spiteful rivalry between the Girondins and the Montagnards. Let's start with the new tribunal. Although created to swiftly dispatch revolutionary justice, the new body's work was a little slower than anticipated. Among the first to be convicted were a royalist journalist, the director of the king's budget, and a secretary for the National Guard. All sound like powerful threats to the revolution if you ask me. Yet. Despite warnings that the people would dispense their own justice if the tribunal was not created with haste, the tribunal soon became just as slow-moving as the institutions it was meant to replace. The disappointment was clear as convictions became less frequent, and worse still, criminals began to be acquitted and set free. Some conservative viewpoints present this dissatisfaction amongst the radical Parisians as yet another example of the revolutionary crowd's bloodlust, proof that the revolution was fueled by a desire for violence. But other historians dispute this vehemently and offer a quite reasonable rationale for the tangible disappointment expressed by some citizens. The anarchist historian Peter Kropotkin, for example, is quick to reject any idea that the sans culottes of Paris were eager to shed blood. Instead, Kropotkin states that the popular anger and frustration, which rose throughout August, was reflective of the fact that the people believed these acquittals were the work of yet more conspiracy. The inaction of the new tribunal was proof not of the accused's innocence, but instead the corruption and counter-revolutionary sympathies of those in positions of power. Clearly, it was not just the royal court which had been compromised, but the assembly and the judicial institutions as well. Kroputkin writes, An attempt has been made by some writers to represent the populace of Paris as composed of cannibals, greedy for blood, who became furious when they saw a victim escaping from them. This is absolutely false. What the people understood by these acquittals was that the governing class did not wish to bring to light the conspiracies that had been hatched in the Tuileries because they knew how many of themselves would be implicated and because these conspiracies were still going on. This portrayal of events is backed up by primary evidence. The Parisian Adelaide Marou, for example, wrote disparagingly as to the tribunal's lack of action. Maru had previously described the Swiss as monsters for their crimes on the 10th of August, and attributed the lack of revolutionary justice to the work of conspiracy and betrayal. Since 10 August, only three people have been guillotined, and the people are outraged. We seem to be sold out. By every side. So, far from executing criminals with haste, the new tribunal initially behaved in the exact opposite manner. This outraged those radical revolutionaries who had demanded swift and uncompromising justice. We're going to leave this plotline here for now, but the key thing I want you to remember is this. Thanks to the arrests of the first terror, there was a popular perception that the prisons were overflowing with counter revolutionary conspirators. Furthermore, not only were the prisons overflowing with these dangerous traitors, but the revolutionary tribunal was failing to speedily convict the guilty of their obvious crimes. This meant that Paris had a problem. With the Duke of Brunswick marching on the capital, Paris was vulnerable. Should these criminals escape their cells, surely they would stab the revolution in the back, just as Brunswick assaulted from the front. As a result of this existential threat, a threat caused by the inaction of the Revolutionary Tribunal and the perception of overcrowded prisons, the people of Paris were inclined to take matters into their own hands. Their actions will be the focus of the next two episodes. Moving on from the work of the tribunal, let's discuss what all this meant for the power struggle between the Legislative Assembly and the self-installed Paris Commune. The events of mid-August surrounding the creation of the Revolutionary Tribunal are a great microcosm of the broader relationship between the two authorities in Paris. The Commune, with its strong links to the radical sections and revolutionary clubs, put forth a proposal that was popular amongst the city's Saint-Colots, but abhorrent to the more conservative assembly. Initially, the assembly refused to endorse this proposal, citing various principles and political theories, but the commune proceeded to insist. That insistence wasn't so much a a pretty-please-with-a-cherry-on-top, so much as it was a comply now or my musket will pop. Faced with the very real threat of political violence, the deputies of the Assembly had little choice but to back down if they weren't willing to risk another insurrection. This process would occur several times throughout August and September, and when the Commune and the Assembly disagreed on policy, well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out which one came out on top. It's because of this that some historians refer to this period of time as the dictatorship of the Commune. And indeed, it's an accurate reflection of the matter. While the Commune lacked significant popular support overall, it did enjoy significant popular support within the most radical and active cohorts of Paris. It was, after all, a body composed of representatives from the sectional assemblies. Assemblies which exerted considerable control over the Parisian National Guard. When the Commune went head-to-head with the Assembly, only one could mobilise the revolutionary saint culottes the Federe volunteers, and the local National Guardsmen. To be clear, it wasn't the case that the Commune had the enthusiastic support of a majority of Parisians, but it did have the enthusiastic support of a vocal and active minority. When that minority is the only group willing to take to the streets with pikes and sabres, well, sometimes a minority is all you need. Thus, when a standoff occurred between the Assembly and the Commune, only one could depend on firepower. To make matters worse for the Assembly, The Commune had no ideological problems using its support to dictate its terms to the national legislature. In fact, the Commune viewed itself as the organ of the people's will, far more so than the Legislative Assembly. Robespierre proclaimed that the people of Paris could interpret the will of the entire nation, and thus the Commune, empowered by the people of Paris, could act on the nation's behalf, with legitimacy. Another supporter of the body declared that the commune needed unlimited power to perform its responsibilities, not only to the citizens of the capital, but to the entire nation. It was reasoning like this that justified the commune's willingness to disregard, overrule, and at times blatantly threaten the legislative assembly. The assembly which, unlike itself, had been elected in national elections. In fact, the commune, despite being a local municipal government, soon proceeded to act very much like a national government. The body unilaterally dispatched representatives to the provinces, at times in direct competition with those sent by the assembly or the ministry. Furthermore, additional delegates were sent to all corners of the realm to recruit troops, requisition weapons, and promote the war effort more broadly. In addition to men and weaponry, the commune also forcefully requisitioned food and other supplies from nearby departments, and took the opportunity to pursue counter-revolutionaries while doing so. Finally, the body collected prisoners from some departments, sending them back to Paris to ensure proper justice was dispensed and the enemies of the people were not acquitted by untrustworthy authorities in the provinces. Interestingly. The Commune's willingness to insert itself into the judicial system not only impacted minor public servants and aristocrats, but the King himself. The Commune overruled the assembly in determining the King's living arrangements after the 10th of August. Initially slated to reside in the Luxembourg Palace, it was the Commune which insisted that he be held prisoner in the much less cosy temple, which, like the Bastille, Had once been a fortress before becoming a prison. Thus, for all intents and purposes, the nation was being run by two separate governments, the Assembly and the Ministry on one hand, and the Commune on the other. Danton, as the Minister of Justice, was one of the few functioning ties between the two bodies, but one man could hardly control two institutions which were not only rivals to each other, but which were controlled by rival political factions as well. Naturally, this competing division of power prevented anything like political stability in the weeks after the Second Revolution. In fact, the English charge d'affaires noted the lack of political stability within the capital, recording that the people were all alarmed and that the assembly was extremely feeble. Considering that the coalition armies were now on French soil, political instability was another problem that the French did not need, but it was a problem they would have nonetheless. However, while this power struggle between the two institutions of the capital was a new dynamic, in some ways it was an old one as well. Underpinning this institutional struggle, was a rivalry which had existed long before the events of 10 August. In the aftermath of the insurrection, the factionalism which had previously gripped the Jacobin Club came roaring back. On one side stood the Girondins, who now dominated the assembly, and on the other side stood the Montagnards and their allies in the clubs and the sections, who dominated the new commune. With the Fionts and other constitutional monarchists vanquished from the political arena. The two sides viewed the other as the last remaining obstacle to the revolution's success. Now, we've been talking about the bitter animosity between Brousseau and Robespierre for some time, but it's here in the final weeks of the Legislative Assembly that the rivalry and hostility between the two men reach new heights. The atmosphere in the aftermath of the 10th of August was one of fear, angst, instability and apprehension. It was a time characterised by conspiracies and plots, by the threats that lurked in every shadow. It was, in short, the perfect breeding ground for factionalism, suspicion and extremism. For the Girondins, the rise of the commune, thanks to the support of the radical clubs, federés and sans-culottes, was both a threat and a political disaster. They found themselves in a situation where they held the responsibility of the government, but they lacked real power. It was, in a sense, déjà vu. Earlier, in 1792, when the assembly and the ministry were first under the Girondin sway, the king had vetoed most of their signature policies. That is, until he fired the interior minister Roland and the other Girondin ministers back in June. Now, just two months later, the Assembly and the Ministry were once again under the sway of the Girondins, and, at least on the face of it, more so than ever. But this time, it was the Commune which exercised a de facto veto over their policies. Worse still, unlike the relatively obstinate but idle court, the Commune intended to actively dictate policy to the Assembly, policies that Brousseau and his allies utterly detested. The revolutionary tribunal forced upon them being a perfect example. The Girondins were distraught by what they saw as a tool for despotism, a tool lobbied for by an upstart and illegitimate institution dominated by men they not only distrusted but despised. In their eyes, the Commune's power rested on unconstitutional and illegal activities, not just of some Parisian radicals, but in particular the individual radicals which had been their personal political rivals for months. This included men like Marat, but most especially it included Robespierre. Robespierre was, in the eyes of many contemporaries and historians, the de facto leader of the Commune, undoubtedly a man of significant influence, even if his exact level of authority and control is debated. So when the Girondins glanced over at the commune, they saw more than just an illegal institution empowered by unruly radicals. They saw Robespierre, the man who they had denounced as a threat to the revolution itself. Remember, in the bitter and personal feuds of 1792, leading Girondins had denounced Robespierre as putting himself above the people and seeking to aid foreign kings. Through his campaign against the war. After the 10th of August, there was no Kumbaya moment for the fractured Jacobins. Quite the opposite. The hostile attitude towards Robespierre remained. In fact, hostile attitude isn't the right description. Perhaps unrelenting attack is better. The Girondins weren't writing some burn book behind closed doors, they were publicly and viciously attacking the former deputy. As time progressed, so too did the Venom, as did the Girondins' conviction that the self-styled champion of the people was seeking to weaken the revolution and empower himself at its expense. As a result, the establishment of the revolution tribunal was particularly troubling for the Girondins. Under the influence of the sections and the commune, and with no right to appeal, the Girondins feared, quite understandably, the new tribunal might be used against them. It was currently priests and aristocrats and fions who were being arrested by the new commune. It was currently these counter-revolutionaries being tried by the new tribunal. But for how long? How long until the Girondins' enemies in the commune made a move against them? As we shall see, the answer to that question is not long at all. Nevertheless, this situation is why the Girondins resisted the Tribunal's creation for as long as they could. They saw the Tribunal as a weapon to be wielded by a man they despised, and it's for this reason that some historians link the establishment of the Tribunal as the final event which caused an irreversible split within the Jacobins. Seeing Robespierre's power over both the people and the institutions of state grow, the Girondins were increasingly hostile to Robespierre and his allies. To them, he was a threat to both the revolution and their own personal safety. It's for this reason that the Girondins attempted to move against the Commune, and in doing so, against Robespierre. Specifically, the Girondin-dominated assembly tried to suppress the new Paris Commune, In the final days of August. The assembly argued that a new commune should be installed following fresh elections, as the current one was illegitimate. As discussed in the last episode, the assembly's attempt failed, as the national legislature lacked substantive support from the sections, the National Guard, and the revolutionary cohorts of Paris. Yet despite their failure to dissolve the commune, The Girondins had little choice but to try. You see, if the Girondins didn't remove Robespierre and his radical allies from their positions of power, then they would remove the Girondins from theirs. That was the logic of many deputies with Girondist sympathies, and their logic was right. If Rousseau and his allies despised and distrusted Robespierre and his associates, well, the feeling was mutual. Robespierre had long suspected the Girondins of betraying the revolution for personal gains, and the events of recent months had confirmed his suspicions. Historian Timothy Tackett recounts the series of events which solidified Robespierre's growing misgivings. His suspicions were only confirmed by the Girondins' inconsistencies on the question of the king during July and by the remarkably impolitic proposal from the Brousseauan journalist Jean-Louis Carrard that the Prussian general, the Duke of Brunswick, be made King of France and welcomed to Paris along with his army. But it was above all the institutional rivalry between the Girondin-dominated assembly and the Montagnard-leaning commune that antagonised suspicions and hatred between the two factions. The list offered by historian Timothy Tackett as to the reasons Robespierre suspected the Girondins is not exhaustive. To add to that list, and to name just a few items, there was the Girondins' sudden defence of the Crown in the days preceding the 10th of August, there was the Girondins' support of Lafayette to a senior military command, indeed there was the original reckless pursuit of war when Robespierre had accurately warned that foreign conflict would jeopardise rather than consolidate the revolution. Add to that the secret dealings with the court he suspected to be occurring, which of course were not yet public at this time, as well as the Girondins' relentless personal attacks on his own person, attacks which labelled Robespierre a traitor, a man who perceived himself to be merely seeking to defend both the people and the revolution. In short, Robespierre had no shortage of reasons to suspect Brousseau and his allies of impure motivations. And to be frank, I can't blame him. Historian Marisa Linton asserts that it was the Girondins who first initiated the practice of labelling their political opponents as conspirators. And we know, with the benefit of hindsight, that Robespierre was correct in his suspicions that the Girondins were secretly cooperating with the court. In short, Robespierre believed that the Girondins were actively betraying the people in pursuit of their own power and self interest. Combined with the revolution's atmosphere of suspicion and its long standing obsession with conspiracy, by August 1792, Robespierre's position towards the Girondins had hardened significantly. The Girondins weren't just his political rivals in the revolutionary arena, but instead the enemies of the revolution itself. Historian Michael Sydenham provides a great summary of Robespierre's perception of the Bressoans. As you listen, you're going to hear Sydenham touch on multiple themes we've been discussing over the last two episodes. This includes the revolution's "kill or be killed mentality, which had been fueled by the Menacing Brunswick Manifesto, and the emerging gulf between the Girondins and the radical cohorts of Paris, thanks to the Girondins' lack of enthusiasm for the insurrection of 10 August. The new Parisian Commune, and the Revolutionary Tribunal. Historian Michael Sydenham writes To Robespierre and his supporters, who had come to believe that either the Royalists or the Revolution must perish, this ambiguous conduct could bear but one interpretation. The Brassoans' cooperation with the nobility during the agitation for war, their conservative tendency, as soon as they had gained some spurious success, and above all their failure to react with vigour to the threat of counter-revolution, seemed to prove them to be self-seeking intriguers, indistinguishable from the enemies of the people. Their reputation was therefore very seriously compromised in Paris by mid-August. Chabot was later to say that the expression parti Brousseau meant those who had opposed the insurrection of 10 August and after that date, they again showed themselves to be irresolute and unwise in the exercise of their renewed, if still restricted, authority. Creditable in itself, their reluctance to sanction revolutionary methods, even to save Paris from attack of betrayal, seemed to confirm existing suspicions of their loyalty, and the ill-timed effort to dissolve the Commune appeared as a final proof of their outright treachery. Historian Michael Sydenham couldn't have done a better job of tying in all the themes of the last two episodes if he tried. If the Girondins suspected the Montagnards of being self-serving parasites which endangered the revolution, well, the feeling was mutual. Thus, as one contemporary remarked, the conditions were perfect for war between the two factions. And indeed, by the end of August, war had undoubtedly commenced. With the power struggle between the Montagnard-dominated commune and the Gironde-dominated assembly exacerbating long-held tensions, the rapid invasion of France and the elections for the upcoming national convention poured fuel onto a fire that was already burning too hot. With both factions believing the other to be self-interested traitors, accusations between the two camps became venomous and frequent. On the same day that Prussian forces entered France, Marat launched a vicious salvo against the Girondins. As a vocal backer of Robespierre, the journalists' attacks were already familiar, but Marat's new position in the commune gave his voice a new sense of authority and legitimacy. Authority and legitimacy he would use to advocate for revolutionary violence and extrajudicial justice. The contents of his attacks were deeply troubling for the targets. Describing Brousseau and his associates as putrid and disloyal deputies, Marat accused them of being in league with Lafayette, who he claimed intended to march his armies on Paris and liberate the King. Of course, on the very same day Marat published this accusation, Lafayette was being arrested by the Austrians, but the commander's desertion and arrest was not yet known in the capital. Yet, the real problem here wasn't the fact that Marat, despite being an influential member of the Commune, was undermining the national legislature by labelling prominent deputies as traitors. No, the real problem for the Girondins can be seen in the contents of the rest of the same publication. In addition to denouncing the Girondin deputies, Marat offered a simple solution to rectify the slow pace of revolutionary justice, which had been infuriating many supporters of the Second Revolution. Marat recommended that the people of Paris take justice into their own hands. His solution for the lethargic work of the criminal tribunals was simple. He implored Parisians to break into the prisons and kill the prisoners inside. Attacking the tribunal that was passed by the Assembly as fraudulent, Mirard demanded swift and merciless justice. The people have two ways only open to them. The first is to bring the traitors held in the Abbey prison to judgement, to surround the courts and the Assembly, and if the accused are absolved, to massacre them without more ado together with the new tribunal and the scoundrels who passed the fraudulent decree of August 17th. The other way is safer and more wise. It is to go armed to the Abbey, drag out the traitors, in particular the Swiss officers and their accomplices, and put them to the sword. What madness to bring them to trial! The trial has already taken place. You have seized them with arms in their hands. In the act of fighting against the nation, you have killed the rank and file. Why do you spare the officers, who are incomparably more guilty? It was a stupid blunder to listen to those who advised making them prisoners of war. They are traitors who should have been done away with on the spot. Considering that the Girondins were already concerned as to how the Commune could misused the new revolutionary tribunal, the advocacy of popular extrajudicial justice by a prominent member of the commune was deeply troubling. Furthermore, that same individual who was recommending that suspected traitors be put to the sword was calling the Girondins traitors as well. Understandably, the Girondins became increasingly worried for their own personal safety, and to be frank, who can blame them? I mean, one of the most prominent and influential members of not only the Commune, but also the Cordelais Club and the revolutionary press, was calling the Girondins traitors, and was separately encouraging the people to kill all traitors. You can see why tensions between the two factions were reaching new and dangerous heights. But it's here, in the weeks following the Second Revolution, with accusations flying thick and fast, That the war of words escalated beyond just words. It's here, in the days following the Assembly's attempt to dissolve the Commune, that Robespierre properly entered the fray. Escalating tensions in the capital even further, Robespierre proceeded to launch his own savage denunciation against the Girondins. With the Girondin dominated Assembly attempting to dissolve the Commune, the Commune Robespierre not only supported, but debatably led. Robespierre proceeded to denounce Brousseau and his allies as being in league with the nation's enemies. The man, whose supporters called the incorruptible, held nothing back. No one dares name the traitors, then I will name them to save the people. I accuse the liberticide Brousseau, the whole Girondist faction and the infamous Commission of 21. I accuse them of having sold France to the Duke of Brunswick, and of having already received the price of their villainy. Describing the Girondins as perfidious intriguers working with the enemy powers against French liberty, Robespierre demanded their immediate arrest. The Commune obliged. If the establishment of the new revolutionary tribunal was not the final irreversible break within the Jacobins, then this was. The Commune, at the behest of Robespierre, ordered the arrest of Brousseau and some of his most prominent associates. As elections commenced for the new national convention, Robespierre and the Montagnards were about to eliminate their most prominent opponents. Or at least, so they thought. For the actions of the Commune would be immediately overshadowed by a river of blood. Thank you for listening to episode 38, The First Terror. The episode extra for this episode focuses on the diary of the Scottish physician John Moore. John Moore was the Scottish witness who stated that there was reason to believe that the Assembly itself was under the influence of terror and we're going to be exploring his account of the events of late August. In fact, Moore's diary perfectly encapsulates so many of the topics that we've been discussing, from the attitude and crackdown towards non-constitutional priests, to fears of the rise of the Commune and its power struggles with the Legislative Assembly. It's fantastic to hear a lengthy first-hand account from someone who was actually living in Paris at the time, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Remember, this episode extra, as well as hours worth of bonus content, is available for all Patreon supporters of the show. Please, if you like Grey History, if you want more Grey History, I need your help. And the best way that you can do that is by supporting the show on Patreon. Don't forget that for those Patreons on the true revolutionary tier and above, you already have early access to episode 39, The September Massacres Part 1. It's waiting for you right now. As always, please tell your friends and family about grey history. Thank you for listening and have a great day. 18 plus.